Well, if you haven't been around Clayton Valley Church very long, it might surprise you, but we are the church where kids get to be kids, and we love that, and uh, so I'm grateful for the time that, uh, that we get to share, and I'm glad that kids make sounds and do things and act like kids, uh, because uh, that's how God built them. And for those who uh, don't like it, I'm sure you can find a church somewhere around here that doesn't have any kids. It's probably really quiet, and if that's your preference, uh, you can do that, but uh, we're, we're grateful to be here. Another thing that we enjoy together as a church is prayer. Uh, prayer is something that is so vital for us as believers, and not just uh, private prayer. That's important. That's a, that's a discipline that we're called to as believers, but also praying together as a church family. Uh, we find in Acts 2.42, uh, what was the church about? They were continually devoting themselves deliber- deliberately to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer. And, and all those things were done together corporately. And so we want to make sure that we're engaged in that as well. And so I want to just remind and encourage, come on by on uh, September 10th at 6 p.m., and we'll be gathering in here in this room to seek God together in prayer. We'll be praying over various areas, various things. And, and, and if you do have kids, know that we'll have child care provided for kids who are four years of age and under. And so there'll be, there'll be care for them over in the nursery area. So uh, just be sure to, to do that, and, and we'll look forward to being with you uh, for that time. Uh, there was a, an episode that happened with Portland police. Um, and what, what happened was... Uh, there was a woman named Amanda, and her ID had been stolen. And so in order for them to get her ID back to her, uh, an officer tried to contact her by phone. He, he, he essentially, her number was present, so he was able to text her, and he texted her that, hey, I've got your ID. And what was her response? She thinks to herself, there is no way a police officer has my phone number. And so she kind of just texts back, nice try, you creep. But Officer Fullington, he was, he was determined, you know, he's like, well, okay, I understand why you're suspicious. In, honest, in all honesty, I'm kind of glad you're suspicious. And so uh, he actually went in front of his patrol car in uniform and took a selfie with her ID <laughs> and says, it's really me. And she was very embarrassed. She texted, I, you know, I'll, I'll be back as soon as I get off work. And so, um, you know. Amanda was skeptical, and, and rightly so, because people have been known to impersonate officers. And, and in the same way, there were also imposters in the first century who claimed to be the promised Messiah. It happened. False messiahs would stand up and say, I'm the Messiah. I'm the promised one. Remember, everyone uh, in, of the people of Israel in the first century, they were waiting for this one who would come and deliver from Rome's oppression. They were looking for the, the ruler who would come and make all things that are wrong right. And so you can see with, when, a, when a people group is that oppressed and when a people group is that needy to stand up and say, hey, it's me. It could be very tempting, especially if you could fake people out for a while. And so because there were uh, false messiahs that would come up, there would also be people who were understandably skeptical of anyone who would claim to be the messiah. And so what Luke is doing here in the Gospel of Luke is, and as we found in in the beginning, if you weren't with us several weeks back, uh, he's giving a historical, well-researched account of what happened. He's letting uh, Theophilus, the one he's writing to, and others who would read this letter know that these things happened in time, in space, in history. They happened in front of 
credible eyewitnesses, people who were actually there. And so in light of that, I'd like to invite you to turn to Luke 3, verses 21 through 38. You'll find that, you'll find that on, on page 46 in the New Testament, on the Bible, in the Bible provided for you in the chair rack in front of you. And uh, in the New Testament, that would mean it's towards the, the back of the Bible. And there's two sets of page numbers in there. So this is really the second page 46. Uh, because this is the Word of God and we want to take it in in respect, let's stand and go ahead and follow along as I read. Luke chapter 3, beginning with verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age. Being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Helsi, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathes, the son of Semin, the son of Joshesh, the son of Jodah, the son of Joan, the son of Reha, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Elkiam, the son of Meliah, the son of Mena, the son of Mattiah, the son of Nahan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Heber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Amen. It's true. Yeah, there's a reason. So praise God for these genealogies. We're going to talk about it. I know to us, we're like, wow, he read all those names. Look, no one knows how those names were pronounced, okay? So ancient Hebrew, modern Hebrew, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're reading them. But to the ancient people, do you realize what I just read was possibly one of the most thrilling sections in the entire Gospel of Luke? And to us, we just go, wow, that's a bunch of names. But it is a bunch of names. Each one with a story, each one with a placement by God in this time and in the times they lived in. You know, God is the one who appoints the times and boundaries of our habitation. And each one significantly in the line of Jesus, the real Messiah. So let's pray. Lord, we we ask that you would uh, help us to understand your word. That we pray that your, your spirit, even now, that he would have his way with us in our hearts. That we would see and understand and rejoice. And that we would repent. And that we would rest in the real Messiah, Jesus, the risen King. We praise you now in his name and anticipate what you're going to do in this time. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. 
so as was mentioned, Luke is giving us a historical account of what really happened. And in doing so, he's helping address the understandable skepticism of many. And we would certainly want to recognize that that skepticism can live on to this day. And maybe you're even here today and you're just thinking about these claims that Jesus would make and the claims that would come from the Bible. And if so, we're really glad you're here. And and want to let you know this is a place for you to come and bring those questions. Bring, Bring doubts. Bring the things that you said. That does not make sense. Because thankfully, we can find answers for those things as we explore God's word together. But as we look at this passage, we're going to really look at it in light of two questions. First, how can we know Jesus really is the unique Son of God? And then secondly, how must we respond to Jesus, the unique Son of God? So let's let's embark on the first question. How can we really know Jesus really is the unique Son of God? And, And to do so, we really need to look at, first of all, this his surprising affirmation. We find it in verses 21 and 22. We see that all these people were coming to be baptized. And if you were with us last week, we understand. John the Baptist is taking people. He's immersing them in water. He's bringing them up out of the water in the same way that the Old Testament proselyte, someone who was not of the people of Israel, would come and want to identify with and follow and worship Yahweh. They too would be immersed in water and brought out of water. And so he's doing this, but this is a different kind of baptism. It's a baptism of what? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so when um, the, the Pharisees and other religious leaders come and say, John, why are you baptizing? Uh, we noted this last week. Interestingly enough, he didn't say, they didn't say, John, what are you doing? They knew what he was doing. Because it was, again, that's what the proselyte would, would do. Uh, a declaration, I'm far from God. I need to be made close to God. But now what John's doing is he is helping God's people, Israel, say, we're far from God and we should be close to God. And we need to turn. We need to repent. And so it's a repentance for forgiveness. And so that's John's message. But now we come to this section and we go, wait a minute. Why is Jesus being baptized? Does Jesus need to repent? Does Jesus need the forgiveness of sins? And and so it kind of makes us stop and pause and we're surprised by this. And, And by the way, we should be because you know what? The people standing there, they were surprised too. As a matter of fact, John the Baptist himself was very much surprised. We find this in the Matthew account. And it just says this. When Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him, but John tried to prevent him, saying, have, I have need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted him. So, so, so what's happening here? Uh, John's going, whoa, I'm baptizing you. These people are being baptized for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, why am I baptizing you? And in essence, uh, Jesus is saying, uh, John, I, I'm not getting baptized for me. I'm getting baptized to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, I'm not getting baptized for me, John. I'm getting baptized for you and for everyone else. Because even though this is a response of obedience, even though this is an act of obedience, the truth is, John, your baptism 
is not perfect. And those who undergo that baptism are not doing so perfectly in a sinless way. Jesus is saying, I alone can fulfill that act of obedience. And so I'm fulfilling all righteousness by doing this. And so this is, a, this, is, this is a surprising thing. For those that are there, they're going, whoa, what is happening? And, and so, um, you know, Jesus comes, comes up out of the water, and, and the Matthew account gives us this picture. It literally says, he, and coming up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended. <laughs> going, what? And that's what we find in, in this account. It's a, it's a much briefer uh, depiction, but we see that, uh, yes, Look at verse 22. As Jesus is, is praying, as he's being baptized, which, by the way, is also a beautiful thing, and we'll touch on that later. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, prayer is a big theme. Jesus prayed. And by the way, if the Lord and Savior, if he prayed, what should we be doing? Yeah, relying on God in prayer. Exactly. He would sneak away to pray. He would pray together with his disciples. So anyway, he's praying as he's being baptized, And then as he comes out of the water, as the the Matthew account tells us, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Uh, It's interesting because some would say, well, wait, uh, did did, uh, Jesus just kind of see the Spirit himself descending? Because some of the other gospel accounts uh, aren't as specific about this. One other account says that John saw the Spirit coming down. But here we find Luke clarifies, no, the Spirit descended in bodily form. Tangibly, for real. How does that work? I have no idea. All we know is what it says. But it was a public event that people saw. And if that wasn't enough, then a voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So let's think about this. Why is Luke putting this here? What's going on? Certainly the incredible event of Jesus coming to be baptized, but then it gets even more surprising as the Spirit descends in bodily form. But then it gets even more, well, I don't know if it's more, but it's also incredibly surprising to hear a voice out of heaven. But think about it. Luke has been setting up a train of witnesses through this entire gospel account so far. Credible eyewitness events. For example, it began with the angel Gabriel coming to Zacharias and Elizabeth. Then it was the congregation outside the temple that saw Zacharias gain his ability to speak again. Then there was the witness of Mary herself as she gets word that she's going to be bearing the Messiah. Then there's the shepherds in the field. Then there's the wise men in the east. Then there's the prophet Simeon. Then there's the prophetess Anna. And then there's John the Baptist bearing witness. And it's almost the idea, if all of those witnesses aren't enough, How about the testimony of God Almighty himself declaring it from the heavens? Do you need more witnesses than that? And you know, I understand. Some some have said this to me even in talking. And I remember I was like this, by the way. Before I, before I repented and believed in Jesus, before I came to Christ, I, I was very much like this. Look, if God would just speak to me from heaven, I'd, I'd buy it. Sure. I remember I had Christian friends in high school, and they'd be like, yeah, you know, Chris, you really need to believe. I'm like, yeah, show me. You know what? Fine. If God wants to talk to me, stone tablet in the living room, engraved by his hand. Chris... Don't be an idiot. Believe in me. Foof. You know, if that, if that happened, great. I'm good. 
But here's the thing. If you're saying, if God would only speak to you from heaven, then I would believe. Consider this. He did. And and here's the thing. I want to encourage you to think about this also. Because you might say, no, it has to happen to me. Well, well, Jesus deals with skepticism of various people at various times in various ways. And really the message of scripture would be this. If you're not going to believe the recorded message of scriptures, what makes you think you would believe if you were even present at the event itself? Because the Bible tells us the issue is not the amount of information that's there. The issue is not the facts, quote unquote. The issue is that all of us, all of us, are addicted to what one writer would describe as we're addicted to our moral escapism. We want to live life our own way. We want to do our own thing. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. And so because of that, we come up with all kinds of excuses to push down the truth that is there all around us. Every scientific discovery that we've had over the past hundred years has demonstrated more clearly than ever that we are not simply a, 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 a product of chance plus matter. The intricacy with which we've been designed can't happen by accident. It's like saying there's an explosion in the desert and this watch came together. It's amazing. One DNA strand in your body is way more complex than the most happening eye watch you've ever had on your wrist. So I want to really take time now to think about this and to go, you know what? God has spoken directly, clearly. Will you receive his testimony about himself? There's a lot of fascinating phrases that we find here in verse 21. Particularly striking is this one. The heaven was opened. And again, you're like, what? The heaven was opened? What's that? The heaven was opened. Uh, We find that described in various places in the Bible. In the Old Testament, we find in Ezekiel, when his... He's coming to, to prophesy. In the 13th year, the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Cherbar Canal, the heavens were opened. And I saw visions of God. In other words, when the heavens opened, we expect God to speak. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, describes himself in this way. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, what's Jesus talking about there? Well, there's this time in the Old Testament when Jacob had just left Beersheba and he's heading toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and he, he laid his head down on, on a stone and he had this dream. And this dream was this ladder and the ladder went to heaven, between heaven and earth. And these angels were going up and down on the ladder. And, and Jacob was just struck by this dream and, and he... he uh, heard God's voice in the open heaven saying, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, 
And then he goes on to promise, the land on which you lie, I'm going to give it to you and your offspring. But Jacob woke up and he goes, whoa, I had no idea God was here. I had no idea God was in this place. And so he took the stone, he put his head on, and he dedicated that. And he named the place Bethel, which means house of God. But he also said this as he was going through that process. And this comes from Genesis 28, verse 17. He says, this is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Isn't that an interesting concept? What do gates do? They open. So Jesus then says in John, truly, truly, I say to you, you're going to see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What's Jesus saying? That ladder that Jacob dreamed of, that's me. I'm the bridge between heaven and earth. I'm the one that brings you to God. And so that is fascinating because in Christ, what we find is the heavens are open. We hear God. And we also find that for all who are in Christ, who have come to Jesus, you realize this, his spirit dwells within you and he is with you. We're told now that the gathered people of God, we are his temple. You know what it also means? It means that God is also surprisingly with you, surprisingly present in those times when it really doesn't think, seem like he is at all. Uh, I talked to a, a friend many, many years ago. Um, he actually came to know Jesus in solitary confinement in a military prison. God was there. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's in the middle of traffic when that person cuts you off. Maybe it's in the middle of your physical trials. Maybe you're facing an illness that you're not sure how this is going to turn out. Maybe you're facing financial pressures. Maybe, maybe you feel helpless. Maybe there's a, a family member far away that you want to help, but you're physically here and you can't get there. Maybe there's, there's sorrow in your life in a way that you can't even describe. You need to understand something. In Christ, God is with you now. And Jesus, in his baptism, he's, he's fulfilling all righteousness. He's also saying, I am the one who came to fulfill the righteousness you could never fulfill. Your hope rests on him. Not on, not on your religious abilities or your moral standards. So this is a very surprising moment. And, and that's one way we can realize that Jesus is the unique son of God. Because believe me, many people were baptized that day. <laughs> but the spirit did not descend in bodily form and there was not a voice out of heaven. It's, he's unique. But we see his uniqueness in another way. It's not only the surprising affirmation, but we also find that Jesus is really the unique son of God because of his matchless family tree. This, this genealogy here, they were familiar with hearing those, but this one is very, very different for all kinds of reasons. First of all, we find out that part of what's happening in the family tree is there's a fulfillment of prophecy going on on several levels. God promised David that there would be someone who would reign on his throne. The Davidic throne. And uh, that was something that, that, again, people were anticipating that. Um, and yet, at the same time, we also find that 
the genealogy given in Matthew and the genealogy given here in Luke, though both referencing Jesus, are very, very different from one another. Uh, They're different in in a few key ways. One would be this. The one in Matthew uh, starts with Abraham. This one in Luke traces back all the way to Adam. And there's a reason for that. Uh, That we'll get to in a moment. The one in Matthew traces the line through a certain route and hits an area that that actually includes a king who's named Jehoiakim. And by the way, this king was not a great king. About 600 years B.C. or so before Jesus came, uh, this one was one who ended up kind of functioning as a kind of a vassal king for an invading empire. Uh, namely Babylon. So people did not see him as being a good king, and he really wasn't. He was just kind of a, a treacherous ruler. And because of that, we find in, in uh, the prophet Jeremiah actually confronts him and uh, says this, Thus says the Lord, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed his days. None of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David, ruling again in Judah. Whoa. None of his offspring shall rule again. So you've got this Matthew genealogy, and it includes this guy. And you're like, wait a minute. Why is he in that one? Because we're told there can't be a ruler from him. No offspring from him. However, the one in Luke here, right at that point where the cursed king is involved, it branches off through another route. Goes a different direction. And so you're going, how does all this harmonize? What happens here? Why are there two? Uh, I recall very early on in, in my walk with Jesus, I, I didn't come to know the Lord until about my first year of college. And it was probably about a year and a half later that I came across the two genealogies as I was reading. I'm like, oh, great. Here was my skepticism. I knew it. It was all a scam. They can't even get the genealogy straight. Right? But then we research it, and something happened. I come to realize these are two different genealogies because they're actually for two different people. One's for Joseph and one's for Mary. And then you're like, wait a minute, how does that work? Well, we're given a clue. The one in Matthew is for Joseph. The one here in Luke is for Mary. Take a look. Verse 23. Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, here's the phrase, as it was supposed son of Joseph, son of Eli. That phrase, as it was supposed, that's your clue. Oh, wait. This isn't about him. Yeah. Culturally, and Luke is very proper in the way he's writing. You can even see it in the kind of Greek he's using. Properly, Luke is not referencing a female in the genealogy. However, we realize this is Mary's genealogy for two reasons. That that phrase, as was supposed, is highlighting the fact that we're not talking about Joseph. Secondly, Eli, son of Eli, Uh, That's Mary's dad. (laughs) That'd be Mary's father. And if Mary didn't have brothers, we don't know about this or not, but if she didn't have brothers, it would be very, very normal for her father, Eli, to adopt Joseph upon their marriage as if he was his son. So you have some cultural background that would feed into this as well. But here's another interesting point as the way all this works out. Uh, You remember if Matthew's is in fact Joseph's genealogy, and Jehoiakim's in there, you're like, hey, wait a minute. He can't be uh, on the throne as a Davidic king if he's the offspring of, oh, wait, 
Joseph's not his biological dad. <laughs> He's not the offspring of Joseph. Therefore, the legal lineage of the kingship through that Joseph in that way is totally fine. Whereas on the other side, through Mary, Mary, he is in fact biologically connected to Mary, but Jehoiakim's been avoided completely. So upon studying that, you're like, wow, it, it, it even holds together better than you'd think. It's amazing. All those details, all those details coming about centuries before Jesus was even born. And so we find that this genealogy not only fits consistently with what happened in the Old Testament, but it also fits consistently with what God's purpose is. Because notice, it goes all the way back to Adam. What's being said here, unlike the Matthew genealogy, which is wonderful because it shows that Jesus is connected to Abraham, he is in fact an Israelite. Here in the Luke account, we find Jesus is not just the savior of the Israel, Israelites. He is the savior of all people from all times because his lineage goes all the way back to Adam, the first man. Um, he's the savior of all people of all time. And that's a stunning thing to consider as well. The other thing we find is Jesus here is unique in that he is the perfect son of God. This is where we find uh, this understanding that Jesus comes uniquely as the second Adam. Adam was created directly by God. There were no other parents involved. There was no other father between Adam and God. Directly created by God. Jesus, in the same way, is begotten, not created, begotten by God. Directly. And in that way, he can function as the second Adam. And that's a huge deal. Uh, we find that in Romans. I encourage you to go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 5, real briefly. Romans 5. Here Paul describes this ministry of Jesus as the second Adam. And we find that he highlights what the, what the first Adam accomplished in verse 12. Look at what he says. Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Go ahead and skip down to verse 19. Again, regarding... Adam. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. But now he talks about this second Adam. Even so, through the obedience of the one, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Now look at verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So throughout those verses, you've got Adam, you've got Jesus. First Adam, second Adam. And ultimately, we find out this. Your entire life, your entire existence, your entire eternal destiny is based on one thing. Which Adam are you in? The first Adam or the second one? And that comes about by faith. And so, verse 21 of, of Romans 5, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
So Jesus is the unique son of God. And as such, he is the second Adam. And as such, he is the one now who lives the life we could never live. He is baptized to fulfill all righteousness. He lives his entire life to fulfill all righteousness. And that means that those who trust in him now can receive that righteousness from him as a gift. In the same way that everyone receives death through sin from the first Adam, so too can people receive life and forgiveness and righteousness through the second Adam. And the question is, what are we going to do in light of this truth? And that brings us to our kind of concluding question for the day. How must we respond to Jesus, the unique Son of God? How are we going to respond to him? And the first would be this. We need to receive him. If you've not yet believed or trusted in him, the the opportunity for you right now is to trust in him, to come to him by faith, to turn to him, to to turn away. We're we're already told to repent of the things that you've been walking with or trusting in. So you've been walking in one direction and the idea of repentance is now I'm going to turn away from that and I'm going to walk in a different direction. I'm going to go in a different way towards a different goal. And so it's a, it's a change of mind. It's, it's changing the mind to say, I, I don't want to follow what I've been following. I don't want to trust in what I've been trusting in. And the fact is all of us can fall prey to that because we, we make up our own little gods, don't we? We have a way of doing that. Um, we think of, you know, in, the, in the, the people of Israel, you know, they're, they're, they're wandering and Moses goes up on Sinai. Before Moses can even come down Sinai uh, with, with the Ten Commandments, what happens? The people have gathered around this golden calf that they've made and they're worshiping it. And we'll do the same thing. We'll make up these other little gods. And so when we, receive, when, we, when we receive Jesus, we're receiving him as king. We're receiving him as savior. And we're trusting in him. And I don't know what the things are that you've been trusting in. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's your sense of accomplishment. You know, maybe, maybe it's like, you know, I, th- I think part of it would be you can ask yourself the question, uh, I know I'm really living if, fill in the blank. You know, you're really alive if, fill in the blank. So it might be, you know, you're really alive if your bank account is up at this balance. Or you're really alive if you've accomplished these goals in your career. Or you're really alive if this relationship with this person is going in a way you desire. You know, parents, maybe it's you're really alive when your kid's room is clean. You know? Actually, it's probably more like this. They're really alive if their <laughs> room is clean, right? That's probably what's going on. But the point would be we set our goals on all these things. They aren't even bad things. And that's really the, the, the deceptive nature of idolatry is these typically aren't bad things that are worshipped. It's, it's when these good things become ultimate things. When we start resting our hope in them. And so the call today is in response, let's receive Jesus. And again, if you've never done that, today is a day that you can turn to him and find forgiveness. Find your sins cast into the depths of the sea, never to return again. You can come to know what life is in walking with the one who made you. Um, A second way to respond is to rest on Jesus. And this really comes from that idea of him being the second Adam. Do you realize as the second Adam, he did everything that the first Adam failed to do? 
As a matter of fact, next week we're going to see what happens in the wilderness when Jesus is tempted. And it's going to be fascinating to see that because each temptation that he faces is essentially the same temptations that the Israelites faced in the wilderness. And where they failed, Jesus did not. And that's why he's our hope. And so we need to rest on him. Maybe you're discouraged this week. Maybe you've been hammered by someone else, by a circumstance, maybe your own sin. And you're just going, why? What is happening? And this is a call to realize my hope rests on his grace, not on my obedience. Trust him. He's the second Adam, and that's why he's our hope. Another way we need to respond to Jesus, the unique son of God, we need to rejoice in him. I mean, think about this. If if, if these elements of just God's provision of salvation, the intricacy of these genealogies, how they all work out perfectly to accomplish his purposes, the fact that we are helpless, but he is almighty, the fact that his justice is satisfied in the willing sacrifice of his son, and yet his mercy is extended in the same moment, at the same time, to sinners like you and me. Things that we would see as being totally not the same or incompatible even. Mercy and justice, both of those things, and yet they're together. That's part of the intricate workings of salvation. That should cause us to just be astounded. That there's a sureness for all who are in Jesus of coming safely home to God. He will bring you safely there. He's more committed to bringing you safely home to him than you are. And that should cause us to rejoice. And there's a last way too. We need to respond by reaching out with Jesus. You know, we're all placed next to people throughout the week. And thankfully, people around us need to hear this message. I just had a conversation even this week with a friend. Uh, he lives in L.A. And he was calling just to, you know, ask for some input on some decisions he was making with something. But as we were talking, you know, because we moved up here about 15 years ago. And, uh, and somehow it came up. And I'm like, yeah, well, you know, I mean, people ask me all the time, why are you pastoring in the Bay Area? <laughs> why? You know, the, the land of paganism and nonsense, you know? I often, have, you know, use the, the very familiar quote, if you know of uh, the Princess Bride, you know, we, we, we live on the cliffs of insanity. You know, that's where we live. That's, that's our home. Welcome, you know? If you don't know what I just did, see the movie. What can I say? But, uh, but here's the thing. What a great place to be. Because there are people all around us all the time that need the Lord. And isn't it wonderful that we don't live in the land of cultural Christianity? Man, cultural Christianity would just drive me crazy. You know, why do you go to church? Well, because everybody goes to church. Because you're supposed to. Do you believe there's a place that's like that still? Yeah, I know. You know friends that moved there. I'm not going to say where it is. We've all got people that moved to those places. Like I told you before, it's, it's, all, it's kind of become one area to me now. It's like, XSNSC, a hoe. You know, <laughs> it's kind of one spot. Why? Because it's not here. That's why. But the point is, why are we here? Do you realize God has us here for a reason? Your neighbors live next to you for a reason. The person next to you at work in that cubicle that drives you nuts, they're there for a reason. 
That BART ride you take, and you're like, really? Why? There's a reason. These are opportunities. Opportunities to, 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 to reach out and to share. And, 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 and by the way, a lot of times it's sowing a seed. Um, you know, Andrew was recently taking uh, the young people through the parable of the sower. And I'm not going to quiz any young people here, like, were you listening on Wednesday or not? I'm not gonna, but, but one of the things that came out, comes out of that is the idea that the seed's being sown. It's being thrown out. You get to do that. You get to be a part of that. What's the crop going to be? That's not your deal. The question now is, how are they going to respond to the word? But what do you do? You go out there and you sow it and rejoice. Because God's using you. He's using you exactly where you are now. As a light. A light of truth, a light of grace. A beacon for lost people. And again, we know we don't have anything in and of ourselves. We're just wounded medics on the battlefield. But we know where to go for help. So let's do that. Let's reach out with Jesus and watch what God's going to accomplish. Let's pray. Lord, we, we uh, ask that you would just press these things into our hearts. And again, Father, if uh, there's just a way that we can see you more clearly and, and that we'd respond to you, the unique Son of God, the King, the Savior, uh, the risen one, uh, may our hope rest in you fully. And may you grace us to to make a difference in the lives of the people you've placed around us, calling them to that same hope in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.